Thank you for listening to our Truth in Life podcast. This season, we will survey the Bible's unfolding story of redemption. From Genesis to Revelation, every book points to Christ and edifies His church. For more information on our church, visit ChristTheWord.com. Amos is a is one of the, well, he's in the middle of the minor prophets. Why are they the minor prophets? Shorter, yeah. Major prophets are? And what are they? The minor prophets are called the 12, often. You'll see the 12, okay, because there are 12 of them. The major prophets are the, the major, I don't think they're called the, so it's, what is the first of the majors? Isaiah. Isaiah, right. Next? Jeremiah, too. Yeah, Lamentations should be in there, but it's really not. You know, I, don't, I think it fits with poetry. Okay, so Ezekiel. Isaiah, Jeremiah. Are we forgetting something? Lamentations. There's five majors, I guess, because Lamentations would, would be included in there. So we're, we're now at number uh, six of the minors. No, we're not. Okay, so it goes with the minors, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. Okay, so we're number three. Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Haggai, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Malachi. And those are the other 12. And uh, Amos is a, is a man from... Okay, let's, let's begin where Amos begins, all right? The first verse is... Pretty much all that we get, we get one further verse in the book that tells us about Amos. The words of Amos, who was among the sheep herders from Tekoa. Tekoa is a, well, I'll show you that. Um, he's a sheep herder from Tekoa, which he beheld in visions concerning Israel <coughs> in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. There's a lot that's there and a lot that's signified in those verses. First, which of the kingdoms is he from? Judah. Judah. How do we know that? Because he's from Tekoa, which is south of Jerusalem. And you remember it was a southern kingdom that was Judah. So, but um, <clears throat> what is he prophesying toward? Israel. So he's a prophet from, okay, let me go here. He is a prophet from Tekoa, okay? Tekoa or Tekoa. And he's going to go to um, a city in the northern kingdom, which is a center of worship that was established by Jeroboam. It was also this, the, uh, the place where uh, well, he's going to go to Bethel up here. So he's going to come from Tekoa to Bethel. How many miles do you guess that is? What? 30, 15. It's, it's somewhere between 25 and 30, somewhere. Yeah, I don't know exactly, but it's, it's not a long distance. It's like from here to to, uh, uh, you know, um, what's Dundee, Michigan, or something like that, going north, you know. He's going to go from Tekoa, which is a very small town, okay, um, down here, 
and it's not an important place. There are a few things in the Bible about Tekoa. There's a wise woman in Tekoa who much earlier in the reign of the, I believe it was in the reign of the judges, who uh, a rebel, uh, would-be ruler of the people, ran to Tekoa. And you remember that there was, a, and took refuge in the walled city. And the, that city seems to have disappeared by this later era. Um, but he takes refuge there. And there's a wise woman who, who calls to the besieging army of the king. Why are you doing this? And he said, well, it's because you were giving refuge to so-and-so. And she says, well, we'll, we'll throw his head over the wall. And so they, they take his head and throw it over the wall. And that's uh, the wise woman of Tekoa. <laughs> and so that is where he comes from. This is where he goes. Bethel, okay, it's famous for what? Historically, what's it famous for? Jack, where did Jacob have his dream and put his head on a rock and see a vision of heaven? Ah! <laughs> Let's hear it for Jacob. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah, okay. Britta, <laughs> where did Abraham build an altar to the Lord? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's hear it for Britta. <laughs> Proving that the Simpsons have at least emotional intelligence because <laughs> they get where I'm going. <laughs> uh, and so Bethel is a, a famous place in the history of Israel. But where is it, Lily? Where is it that Jeroboam, who took the northern kingdom when God split off a portion and said it's not going to be with the house of David, split off the ten northern tribes, Jeroboam, who God gave it to, the rebel who had been down, way down here in Egypt and came back at the end of Solomon's rule when Rehoboam was, Solomon's son was taking over. Where did Jeroboam, when he hived off the ten tribes, where was one of the two places, Lily, that Jeroboam put a golden calf for the northern people to come to, to worship? That's right. Okay. Proving the Domingos... <laughs> And where else? Way up here. It's not on the map. In Dan. Okay, so he put one at either end of the kingdom. So if you notice from Jerusalem to Bethel, it's only about 12 miles. It's not a long distance, you know. Here is the proper area. Here's the border, okay, between the tribe. Uh, oh, yeah. Between the tribes, okay. Does this show it? Yeah. Here's jo Judah. See, See, Judah comes over to here. See how Bethel is right here? And here's Jerusalem. I mean, and this is now Israel, well, up to about here. And here's Judah down to about here. All right, we're going we're gonna to return to this. So this is the guy. He's a shepherd, which signifies that he's not like Isaiah, not like Jeremiah, not like... Um, <clears throat> Uh, Ezekiel, all of whom seem to have been from the, the wealth and nobility. And clearly, Daniel is of the nobility he's taken. So, so this guy is as, you know, it's like getting R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur and, you know, I don't, 
who's, who's the, uh, I don't know, someone else like that, you know, and, and sending them. And then you send, uh, you know, Bob Walter, a farmer, right? God sends first, he sends John MacArthur, he sends John Piper, he sends all these guys to, to prophesy. And, and then he uses a farmer. Now, actually, remember, remember, I'm doing an anachronism now because Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel all follow Amos. They're after Amos. They're not before. So I'm, but God uses all types. God uses a guy who is a sheep herder. And he also is a guy who we learn later in the book. I think it's in, where is it? is a tender of figs. I, I can't remember, but those of you who've read it remember, it says he's also a tender of sycamore fig trees. And so I thought I would, um, this, okay, so he had <clears throat> sheep. He also tended these trees. It's a sycamore fig tree. It bears a fruit that looks like that, but that's how big it is. This is what it looks like inside. Does it look fancy? Does it look like a good fruit? No. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's small. It's, it's, it's used by poor people. It's not a delicacy. It's abundant. You know, it's like, what are those? Reminded me of those things that we get at this time of year that fall under the, the yard and make a, a big mess. Are they with a hard inner buckeye and an outer? No, no, no. They're all in my backyard. They're soft on the outside and crummy. They're like the size of a small baseball. What? Osage oranges. That's what, yeah, something like that. Yeah, just, it's a lousy fruit. And, and as a tender of them, what they said is that he would be a, a pincher of them. The, the, the tenders would pinch them to make the crop bigger and more abundant. And so... He is really doing physical labor. This man is a man who's actually out plowing the fields, pinching the crops, tending the sheep. And God calls him and says, you are to go north. All right. What's that? I didn't hear. OK, so God calls him. Now he speaks about he says, evidently, someone wrote down the prophecy later. Maybe Amos himself did it. Maybe someone who, who was familiar and heard him was inspired to write it down. Because there's an interesting reference in verse 1. The words of Amos, who was among the sheepherders from Tekoa, which he beheld in visions concerning Israel, the northern kingdom, in the days of Uzziah, who was the king of the southern kingdom, and was a good king, remember, though grew proud, um, in the, king, in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, that's Jeroboam the second, because the first king of the northern kingdom years before was Jeroboam. Jeroboam the second, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And so the writer knows he did this, and then two years later, there's an earthquake, all right? And that earthquake is often called, it's not technically known as this, but Christians will call it, and you know, uh, and Jews will call it Amos's earthquake because it was an epic earthquake. 
They say that modern reconstruction of the damage going in rings, concentric rings from the epicenter of it, says that it was probably a, a, an eight or a plus on the Richter scale. You know that the Richter scale is logarithmic, isn't it? What do you call it? It's, uh, it's not uh, 7.9 and 7 and 8, and 7 is just one step below 8. It's like 10 times for each. You know, an 8 is 10 times more violent than a 7. And, uh, and so that, the epicenter was north of Damascus, okay? But it's clear the damage ran all the way down into Egypt and, and you know, the, uh, towards the Red Sea and uh, was an immense earthquake. And they found whole cities devastated, wiped out by this earthquake. And so it's known as uh, Amos's earthquake. Or Amos tells the... The northern kingdom, all right, look, he's, it's two years before the earthquake. If you look and it, look at verse, chapter 8, verse 8, you will see that Amos speaks of, indeed, uh, I will never forget any of their works. God is saying I, they're evil. Because of this, will not the land tremble? And everyone who inhabits it mourn. Indeed, all of it will rise up like the Nile, and it will be tossed about and subside like the Nile of Egypt, which could be taken for, okay, now let's look at 6.11. 6.11 says, For behold, the Lord is going to command and will strike the great house to pieces and the small house to fragments, all right? Chapter 3, verse 14, we have the promise, For on the day that I punish Israel's transgressions, I will also punish the altars of Bethel, where they worship the golden calf. <clears throat> I will punish the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut in pieces and will fall to the ground. And then in chapter 9, verse 1, we have the statement that God is going to judge okay I saw the Lord standing beside the altar and he said strike the capitals so that the thresholds will quake quake strike the top and I'll break on the heads of them all then I will kill the rest of them with the sword not one of them and so is this a prophecy that God is going to send this earthquake to devastate it's not explicit. It does seem quite possible, doesn't it, as you read this, that God was warning them of this. But actually, this prophecy is not fulfilled really by the earthquake. The earthquake comes in two years, and despite its greatness, it's just like an initial tremor. It's, a, it's one of the initial, but the real earthquake that's going to come is going to come in I don't remember, is it 20 or 40 years? Right now, the Assyrian Empire, which is uh, up to the north there, okay, this empire, in the, in the century, century prior had come down and had been right on the borders of Israel here. Had come all that way, threatened Israel, and then backed off. And Israel thought, okay, we're safe. 
this has been a quiet half century for Assyria. It's retrenching, it's, it's sort of given up ground and gone back. And all these, especially Israel is feeling, it's regained its original borders. It's gone back to the borders it had under Jeroboam and under Solomon up at the north. And they're thinking, wow, this is a great time. This is, you know, it's the wealthiest time probably in the history of that northern kingdom. It's the best era ever. And it, it must have seemed impossible to them at that point with the receding of Assyria, with their regaining their borders, with the wealth that was theirs, must have seemed impossible to them that God was going to, that, that just 20 years from now, I, I believe it's 20 years, that 20 years from Amos coming, that kingdom is going to be gone forever and the people dispersed across the world. And I think it's something to bear in mind that when God says fini, finished, to anyone or anything, it's done. It, it doesn't matter how wealthy or great or proud you are. It's a warning to our nation that when God says, I've had enough, there's nothing that's going to stay his hand. And Israel, for all its wealth and pride at this point, is doomed. Now, the prophecy comes with this picture of a looming doom um, to bring hope in the midst of all that God promises of devastation. Of course, the message is just as it is for Jonah, which you're going to, I think, move on to the, you know, further into the Minor Prophets. Remember that Jonah goes to Assyria, <clears throat> to Nineveh, and uh, does so before Amos. But he goes with a message from God, and he goes and declares it when he finally gets there after the, the great fish and so forth. When he finally gets there, what is the message he preaches across that huge city of Nineveh? Does anyone remember? It's very simple. In 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. He doesn't even say repent, does he? He says 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Was that a true prophecy? Yes. Did it come about? No. Was it a true prophecy? Wasn't a prophet to be known by whether or not his prophecy turned out? Was it a true prophecy? It's, it's a confusing thing. Of course it was a true prophecy, but inherent in every prophecy of doom is the promise of God's relenting if you'll repent. If we repent, God will relent. So people look at the prophecy and they see only the wrath of God. But when you hear people speak about or preachers preach about the wrath of God, there needs to be in your mind. Jonah didn't didn't speak it. He didn't say, but it's obvious he didn't because he didn't want them to repent. Right. Remember, he didn't want them to repent. But we should listen and say, but God is merciful. You know, but God is merciful. And so. Amos speaks of this and they don't listen to him. So he begins his prophecy, wow, uh, by, by um, <clears throat> going through a recitation 
of a number of, of kingdoms that God is going to judge, okay? And that takes about a chapter. It goes from maybe two chapters. From verse 3 of chapter 1, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord. You see it? Three, thus says the Lord. Then six, thus says the Lord. Nine, thus says the Lord. Eleven, thirteen, okay? And, uh, oh, man. Then uh, two, one, two, four, two, six, all right? The first one is against Syria and Damascus, which are, okay, okay, here. Syria and Damascus, right? Here, up in here. Then he goes to, what's the next one? Philistia, right? Isn't the next one Philistia? Am I right? Yes, Philistia. And that's in 1-6, Gaza, the area that's in the news today, right down in here. So it goes from here to here. It's almost 180 degrees across the compass, all right? Next, he goes to Phoenicia and Tyre, which are where? Right up here. It's where Jesus met this Syrophoenician woman, okay? Jesus spent a fair bit of time up there. We have no evidence of him visiting down here, but he did go up into that Gentile area and spent probably months there. Um, Phoenicia and Tyre. Okay, those three. So Damascus, Syria, Philistia, uh, and then Phoenicia. Then, uh, having gone sort of around the clock once, we come back to Edom, all right? And Edom is down... Well, yeah, Nabatu. Um, okay, here it is. It's, it's where modern-day Petra is, and the Nabataeans were kind of Edomites. And so it's in around here. Very, very, they have the cliffs, the red cliffs, and so forth. Um, and then next to Ammon, all right, to the Ammonites. Are they on there? Yeah, here. Edom, Ammon, and then... Moab, okay, so do, do you see it's do, do, there's an outer ring and then it comes to an inner ring. Do you see that in the form of the prophecy? The outer ring are kingdoms that are not physically related to Israel. The inner kingdom, uh, Edom, beginning with, who is Edom? It's the descendants of Jacob and Esau. Esau's descendants are Edom. Ammon and Moab are whom? Lot. Lot. So they are blood relatives, okay? So you see how there's an outer circle of non-blood relative nations, an inner circle of blood relatives, and what's going to come next? Israel and Judah. And so, you know, it's kind of a lolling of, oh, it's way there. Oh, it's way down there. Oh, it's way up there. Oh, it's those people who treated us poorly. Oh, it's those people who treated us, you know, and, and then it comes and it ends with Israel and Judah, the prophecy. And so God punishes these nations for what they did. Syria for its savage cruelty. Um, the... Uh, for what they did, three transgressions, they threshed Gilead with implements of sharp iron. They came into Israel and they just treated it like it was, raked it. So I will send fire. Gaza 
because they took away into exile the whole of exiles to deliver it up to Edom, Gaza, all right, took people from Israel and Judah and delivered them over to the Edomites to be what? Sold them into slavery, all right? Tyre, God will punish Tyre for deporting enemies. They did basically the same thing and they broke a treaty with Israel. And they took Israelites and sold them to the Edomites. Um, and then we continue to move on. Edom, for pursuing his brother mercilessly rather than having compassion. When Israel was down, Edom took and sold their, their captives into slavery to other nations and enslaved them themselves. Um, Ammon. What did Ammon do? It ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead to enlarge their border. All right. You see that the, the sins of our nation and the sins of our past slavery, the killing of children are hated by God in this book. Hated. God despises these things. God despises the kinds of things that our nation has practiced for centuries. And, you know, it's, and so then God comes around and he says, but despite the sins of these others, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, it's like for three and for four, it's a, it's a grabbing of the attention, you know, each time it's for three and for four, you know, there's always more, you know, for three and there's another one, you know, it's, it's that kind of device that says, yeah, you know, just, there's many here. I will not turn back because they rejected the law of the Lord, have not kept his statutes. Their falsehood has led them astray. That which their fathers walked at, walked after. So I send fire upon Judah and will consume the citadels of, of Jerusalem. And then for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not turn back its punishment because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals, those who pant after the very dust of the earth on the head of the poor also turn away aside the way of the humble. In other words, the, the poor, the needy are despised in the northern kingdom. They sell them. They, they treat them as though they're worth about a sandal. And uh, disgust with and lack of patience with and lack of care for the poor and needy is the message of this book. So, Isaiah, uh, so Amos goes north and he speaks to this nation, this wealthy nation that thinks it's so pure, and he speaks of the women of that nation as being what? Famous phrase. Cows of Bashan. Look. And what is the... Bashan is an area in the north that was, was one of the bread baskets. It's in the northern kingdom, but it was one of the bread baskets of the, Rome, of the Roman Empire. It was a wealthy, agricultural, fertile ground. And Amos says you, to the women of of Israel, you cows of Bashan, implying what? Fat with 
with their own glory, fat with their own, I don't think it's speaking of physical fatness. It's just saying they're, they're just so well fed in every way that they have become like this. Decadent, voluptuaries, you know, you know the term voluptuary, you know, they, they're about, they're sensualists, they are wealthy, they don't care for the poor. And America is a culture of cowsabation, isn't it? You know, the housewives of Bel Air or whatever, what's it called? You know, uh, the, the Kardashian women, you know, the men are as disgusting. They're, they're not men, you know? And the cowsabation roam our land, don't they? And they don't care for the poor. There's crocodile tears for the poor in America today. Right? Oh, the poor, oh, the poor. But what do we give up for the poor? You know? I mean, I really think as Americans, I, you may say, well, you're talking to me as a Christian, David, and, I, and you shouldn't accuse me of the things that Americans do. First, I'd say I'm not sure that the sins of America are not present in the church. I, I'm always aware that there are probably girls in our church who are having abortion, right? It's not just out there. You know, it's, it's like the Speaker of the House said years ago, um, a lie is an, an offense against Almighty God and an ever-present help in time of trouble. Abortion is awful and evil until it's my daughter who's pregnant and whose life is going to be done in. So my brother was speaking to the college group last week and said when he and his wife, both children of Christian families, when she got pregnant out of wedlock, they thought, should we get an abortion? They didn't, but we know it's there, right? And in the same way, the, 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 our, our IRAs grow, our things grow. Are we helping the poor? You know, have you identified someone who's poor? Especially it begins in the house of God, the scriptures say. Do you know someone who's poor that you've given $1,000 to or $5,000 or $10,000 to? Have you done that? You know, this is God speaking to us and saying, because you sell the poor, you'd rather use them. I, I am... I am distressed at times when there are working men in our church who are making, you know, a working man's salary and they get asked by wealthier people to do work, but the wealthier people want a big break on price because they're, you understand what I'm saying? This is not right. You know, these kinds of things should not be in the church. We should pay more than the, the, the greedy people of the world because we're not greedy not looking for breaks from those who are poorer than us? Am I, am I making sense? I mean, these things do touch us. They're not just out there, are they? And so you, you start going through the, the book and there are these tremendous indictments of this nation for its wealth and its lack of care. And throughout the book, there is this... Um, this theme that, that 
Amos returns to. He begins with it in, in chapter 1, verse 2. Uh, the word of the Lord came to Amos. He was a sheep herder. And Amos began by saying, the Lord roars from Zion. The Lord roars from Zion. What is the Lord? What roars? A lion. The Lord is a lion, right? You know, look at chapter 3, verse 4. Does a lion roar in the forest when it has no prey? Does a young lion give forth its voice from the den unless it's captured? Does a bird fall into a trap on the ground when there's no bait for it? Does a trap spring up from the earth when it captures nothing at all? If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people tremble? What's all this leading to? This lion, this devastation, the trap, all these things. And the next verse says it. It's that God is doing it. You think it's nature. You think it's those nations. You think it's this, that, and the other. Do these things happen by chance? Does a trap catch an animal in its, in its snare without there being some consciousness, some working mind that sets the snare and, 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 and captures the, the animal. And then he goes, okay, does a lion roar without a purpose? Does a young lion roar without, does a trap spring without something behind it? You know, does a bird fall into a trap when there's no bait? Is there not something Causing these things, if a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people tremble? If a calamity happens in a city, has not the Lord done it? Did the Lord do what's going on in Gaza right now? Did the Lord do World Trade Center? Now, he didn't do it, but was the Lord the cause? Did he in his... Sovereign will say, all right, I'm going to let this go. And I'm going to teach my people a lesson. Right? God does these things. Surely the Lord does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his slaves, the prophets. In other words, listen to the prophets. Listen to those who warn you that God is angry. And who are they listening to? Later in the book. There is a guy up in the northern kingdom who's a priest of Bethel, that, that northern area where, um, where they had the, the golden calf. And he tells them, go back. Go back to your country and your city. We're done with you. Threatens them, right? Routinely, what do the prophets encounter when they prophesy? What did Jeremiah encounter? You know, what did Ezekiel They encounter... Other prophets who say, oh, no, it's all good. It's all good. The Lord loves you. You know, oh, the Lord's going to break the horns of your oppressors. And meanwhile, the true prophets are saying, oh, no, no, God is angry. The false prophets are saying, God loves you. God has good in store for you. God is pleased with you. And the, the true prophets are saying, well, which do we want to hear? You know, in, in today, as in that day, we want to hear the one who says God loves you. It has a wonderful plan for your life. And no, God would never cause something like the World Trade Center or the Gaza. No, our God's kind and benevolent. And he, our God is kind and benevolent. And he does love people, but he hates sin. And he calls us to repent.
And we need to remember this over and over again. The message is repent, turn away. And what happens? So God always speaks through a prophet. Always speaks. I remember back when we first invaded Iraq under President Bush I, a guy named David Wilkerson. How many of you remember David Wilkerson? He wrote The Cross and the Switchblade. And he was a charismatic preacher in New York City. He, he, was a, he was one of the great men of American Christianity of the last century. But very few people know him because he's charismatic. But he, he wrote The Cross and the Switchblade. He went to the gangs in the 50s and 60s before people were doing that kind of brave, courageous man. He bought a full-page ad in the New York Times back when there were full-page ads in papers. What? Have you ever, any of you read it? What? Full-page ad. And he said, should we expect God's blessing as a country going to war? And then he, he listed our sins as a nation and said, we need to repent because God is not necessarily on the American side. And I just thought, what a man. You know, spent his money, put this ad in, called the people, the nation to repent, spoke truth, spoke truth. So we have, um, we have, okay, I want to end with um, what God does when, when things are evil. What is the worst form of famine that God sends? What's the very worst of the famines God punishes a people with? Well, uh, in chapter 8, um, God says, The Lord showed me, and behold, there was a basket, shows Amos a basket of summer fruit, which is, you know, the end of the season fruit. He said, What do you see, Amos? I said, A basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, The end has come for my people Israel. I will pass over them no longer. In other words, I will not ignore their sin any longer uh, and they will wail the songs of the palace in that day they will in other words their happy songs will become songs of mourning many will be corpses in every place they will cast them forth in silence hear this you who trample the needy even to cause the humble of the land to seize in other words you who destroy the poor um, Verse 7, the Lord is sworn, sworn by the lofty pride of Jacob. Indeed, I will never forget any of their works. Because of this, will not the land tremble? Maybe a, at this point that he speaks of the coming earthquake. But then the great punishment, chapter uh, 8, verse 11, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. People will wander from sea to sea and from the north even to the east. They'll go to and fro and seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. God has stopped speaking to them, stopped warning them, stopped calling them, stopped speaking. And it's a famine of the word of the Lord. And that is the darkest of famines. Because while God is speaking to you, there is hope. But when he withdraws his word, and stop speaking to us these hard messages, then hope is gone. And so we need to pray that God raises up prophets from our midst, men and women, men who will go and preach the word of God. 
Because America is really entering a time of this kind of famine where the word of the Lord is silent in the land, not spoken, not, not prophesied, but a silent time. And those at times can, can lead to a return of the word. We see it with many nations, biblically and outside of scripture. There was a, a famine of the word in the land in, in the late 1600s to the mid 1700s in England. And then God sent preachers, John Wesley, Whitfield, and it really kept England from going the route of France with the Great Awakening, with the incredible rise of the Enlightenment and atheism and all that France has gone through for centuries. So God does end famines with a pouring out of his word. And that's what we need to pray for and ask God to make us servants of, right? Jack, would you close us with prayer? Thank you. Thank you for listening to Truth and Life. If you enjoyed the series, please subscribe. And remember, from Genesis to Revelation, every book is truth to live by.